We revisit Thanksgiving week again with this episode from November 28, 1993. It's possible another date may have slipped in, or the tape was mislabeled, but that does not happen often as our friend Joan was rather meticulous and would even provide copious notes. So, because this is a Norm Nathan Show dumb birthday game Norm Nathan Show broadcast, I've decided to call it a cold turkey sandwich. You see what I did there? Because the dumb birthday game is sandwiched in between a Norm Nathan show and another, no, from Thanksgiving, yeah. The dumb birthday game is only a partial game that picks up towards the end. We get two celebrities, three history questions, and lots of puns. Callers throughout are as follows. Good old Jack in New Hampshire, Jane in Pinehurst, North Carolina, John, Paul, Dave, the reminiscing Pete, the hacking, snorting, hysterical Beverly. Now that's a call. Guy from Westford and Anne. We welcome an awesome repeat guest, Gene Aspen, author of Arctic Daughter, A Wilderness Journey. What an amazing story in life. Her description of being in the Arctic is stunning. We had her on with her other book, Arctic Sun. The Dumb Birthday Game is joined in progress and is very funny. Where or oh, where is the rest of this game? The players... I'm on the phone, Sid Whitaker was producing and playing in studio, Bruce Connolly was in traffic, we have Fred in Medford, Dave, Virginia, and Itsy Bitsy Christopher. The birthdays, Gary Hart and Hope Lang, and then the history questions, what year did the Coconut Grove Fire happen in Boston? America's first auto race took place in what year? And in what year was the first WSM barn dance, which was later renamed the Grand Old Opry? We get to hear some commercials from the club, Ovaltine, very, very brief on Mrs. Nelson's Candy House. I hope one of these tapes has the full commercial, because that's a classic. And a commercial read by Norm for Heritage Radio. There's so much other hash on our plate, but I'll only give you a taste. Traffic to Romance and Dying 2 with Bruce Connolly. Mike Epstein joins Norm to talk about agent extraordinaire Bob Wolf, who had recently passed. The Penny Ferry. 75% chances of survival. Five moose, a bear, and a caribou. Oh my! Lum and Abner. The Bahamas? Sounds in the night. Jazz. Ginkheads. Drifting off to sleepy land. Entering a world of decadence. And so much more. Episode 165. A cold turkey sandwich. Slices its way to your ears. In three, two, and one. Evidently. Well, that's no, what, I guess maybe. I don't know. Either it is or it ain't. <laughs> that's right, yeah. I have all the lot you can do about it, is it? Not too much. And listen, uh, the name of the tunnel, I think, and I, I think it's delightful that uh, they're going to name it for uh, Williams, the baseball player, but I think a better name for it would be the Yorkie. He, he was a great man in Boston. Baseball. Well, I guess, yeah. Of course, they have it. They have Yorkie Way. They have a street named after him. Yeah. Somebody suggested that uh, if they're going to name anything after Williams, if they ever get around to building a, a dome stadium or something like that, that ought to be known. Well, that would be appropriate. Yeah, but I think that uh, for a lasting name in the tunnel world, obviously, last. And uh, I think it was Tom Yorkie. Uh, or Mrs. Yorkie, for that matter. She was quite a uh, gal yeah. Yeah. in the sports history of Boston, which is the sports town of the nation. No question about that in my mind. Sports town of the nation. 
Pardon? Okay. I didn't need you. No, that sounds good. Yeah. That's all I have to say. Well, I hope you have a nice weekend, Jack. Well, I, I try to make it after 70 years. I keep struggling along. Keep it harbor, which was by Paul Revere. Okay, yeah, I guess because we got a city named Revere. Yes, but you know, uh, the, uh, the names mean nothing as the years go on, but Paul Revere, as uh, Longfellow said, the as Fox struck out by that feed in his flight would kindle the land to flame with his heat. Right. And, you know, it was, uh, uh, I've done a lot on memorials and the six words for you stand free because they fought for the Bourne Cemetery. And I think you ought to give it something that has meaning. That, uh, why was it named this? The Paul Revere Tunnel. The Paul Revere Tunnel. Okay. Well, that's the Revere well, Paul Revere, because you say Revere, then you throw those guys down and... And Revere had some political clout. Yeah, I think if you, I think in that case you'd say the whole name. Yeah. Although we don't, we don't with the Sumner or Callahan tunnels, and most people have no idea what the, what those names were for. The, this, you, you know, you know uh, where those names Sumner and Callahan tunnels well, came Callahan from. Callahan was named for Callahan's son. That's right, William Callahan Jr. And that's it. And if you get stalled in traffic, you can read that over there. Oh, that's right too. Yeah, it was the commissioner's, the transportation commissioner's son. Okay, as you point out, killed in World War II. And uh, do you know who uh, William H. Sumner, for whom the Sumner Tunnel was named? No, I don't know. And they named Sumner... No, he's not Sumner Street, though. No, he was... Uh, no, that's Summer Street, I yeah, think, the street yeah. in Boston. But this is Sumner with an N. Yeah. Uh, he was named after... Uh, that, he was a World uh, War of 1812 veteran. Mm-hmm. And uh, the construction of that, of the Sumner Tunnel, began during... Uh, James Michael Curley's term, and so that's why somebody suggested why not name one after James yeah, Michael I drove Curley. Through it when the, I drove through it when the toll with a nickel. <laughs> Is that the original charge? <laughs> yeah. Do you remember the Penny Ferry also? Was it a Penny Ferry that used to go? Yes, there was. My father took me across on that. We weren't living around, but we were living around Boston in 1916 to 1920. And uh, he also knew a lot of history because he was born in 1870. I was the Youngest, I was the youngest son of the old. Uh, he was the youngest son of an older man, and so was I. Okay, so, so my you, grandfather you, goes back to about eighteen twenty-nine or something. Okay, I was trying to figure out when you you go back to nineteen ten. You were born in nineteen ten. Yeah. Okay. And I've uh, since I was sixty, I've lectured in forty-seven countries and on four continents and in two languages, one of which was Spanish. I learned after age sixty-five. No kidding. Now, what, now what, do you, what, what do you lecture on? Improving your memory. I just had a book come out on my 79th birthday, Blueprints for Memory, and I just got a copy of it in Spanish from South America. Well, now, what, without, without giving the whole thing, what is the, the key thing we should look for when we're trying to improve our memories? Is it a, a word association? How do you do that? Just organize the information so you can think about it. Uh, when you were back at school and they told you that the F-A-C-E face spelled the spaces on the staff, that had meaning you could remember it, so therefore you could think about it. But then you came to the lines which had no meaning, and so the E-G-B-D-F, so they said every good boy does fine. Now that has nothing to do with music, but it holds it where you can think about it. So all the kind of hardships that you have gone through, and you come from a family like that. Your mother was uh, uh, a, a traveler through the Arctic as well. And yes, so both my parents were Arctic explorers, and and wrote a, a total of 12 books between them. 
So did you, did you grow up? It was were they going mostly to Alaska, or did they go to other parts of the world? It was mostly Alaska. Uh, my parents were divorced when I was three, and I don't remember my early life with them uh, out following the caribou by dog sled on the Arctic Ocean um, very well. Uh, but after uh, by, my mother moved to Tucson with my sister and I, when we became um, very young teenagers, I was 14 and my sister was 12, my mother took us by canoe to the Arctic Ocean through Canada for 3,000 miles down the Mackenzie Slave River system. Mm. And, uh, and as a matter of fact, that book is also available right now. It's just been republished because people were interested in it. That's called Down the Wild River North. Oh, okay, good. I, I must read that. This, this, now, this book, The Arctic Daughter, The Wilderness Journey, uh -huh. details uh, time that you spent in Alaska in 1972. That's yeah. right. The night, in fact, you stayed there for what, four, four years, although yeah, you, had four to, years. you had planned to go for one. Yeah. <laughs> and the, and, and wa watching you or reading about you and Phil Beisel, is that how he pronounced his last name? Yes, that's how you pronounce oh, his last name. Okay. Now, you just listening to you going up the, uh, uh, the Yukon River, and then uh, I've never known how to pronounce the name of that other river that was a subsidiary, I guess. The Chandelar. Chandelar River. Mm -hmm. And then up and toward the Brooks Range and up through through that area, uh, with, I guess without a map. Also, your your map sort of uh, <laughs> sort of sort of began began north of where you were going, uh, or north north of much of what your trip was all about. I, I just I, I just can't picture that. And you went in what was it the month of June? Well, you can't start until the ice is all gone out and the country sort of settled down from the spring flood. Uh, what we did is we uh, put our canoe into the river at one of the few places where a road comes to the Yukon River, which is the town of Circle, and we floated down the Yukon for a ways. And when we got to the Chandelar River, then we had to walk upriver about 300 miles, pulling the canoe uh, with ropes um, to get up into the mountains. And that took much of the summer. And then at the end of the summer, we needed to build a cabin so that we could survive the winter. And uh, we had to have all the tools and food and supplies and books and whatever we needed with us in the canoe, which, and of course, a canoe doesn't hold a lot. Now, you were the expert on this, uh, but Phil was not. Was, it, was this his first trip along those lines? This was his first trip, but it was also my first trip in, in a way. I think when we started... Uh, out, we figured we had perhaps a 75% chance of survival. But you must remember, we were in our early 20s, and it was a good time to be risking, to be trying ourselves against uh, obstacles. I think this is a very important part of the energy of young people, that they really need to um, try themselves against something. And I think, in fact, that the, the energy we see going into drugs and gangs these days is, in fact, um, sort of a thwarted natural drive to uh, to find out who you are and, and what you can accomplish in life. It's really kind of interesting. You, you you put that so casually, and I understand about trying when, when you're 20s. You, you know, in your 20s, you'll do things that you don't do in your 40s or 50s, certainly 60s or whatever. Right. But very few people, even in their 20s, are going to do the kinds of stuff that you were doing back then. Now that's a, And you say a 75% chance of survival. Uh, that's a good way to look at it. I, I suppose many of us would say... <clears throat> At very best, we got a like a twenty five percent chance we're never going to get out of this thing alive. And I, I suppose I'd look at that that way. And you're going where there there's nobody, and and building. I I don't I can't even imagine how you even know how to build a cabin out there in the in this in the wilderness. Well, this is where Phil came in. Actually, he was good at building anything, 
and uh, we worked together on it. And we were really very green in some ways, but in other ways, by having had my experience, of course, in canoeing and being able to talk with my mother and planning the trip, my parents had done this sort of thing earlier, I had a pretty good idea of a person's food consumption and uh, the kinds of tools we would need. It was not an unplanned trip. It was as well planned as we could do it, but then, of course, we were limited by the space in the canoe. That's right, because you weren't bringing a big trailer truck up. You were just carrying it on a canoe, and you couldn't bloat it. Uh, tremendously heavy, I suppose, because then it would, you know, would sink. <laughs> Actually, we loaded it too heavy, and it was uh, lucky we only had to float the Yukon for a few hundred miles, and then we were able to pull the canoe and get out of it because we were actually overloaded in the canoe. I thought it was in intriguing when you got to, forgive me, I'm terrible with names, but the, this Glenn Olson's uh, place. Um, oh, um, oh, uh, Chris Olson. Crystal, I'm terrible with names too, as you can see. That's okay. But you, you were, you were close to where you were planning to go, and you came across this old settlement, well, uh, which had been had been uh, had been uh, abandoned, I guess, many many years before. But uh, there were all kinds of rusted old tools there that you put to use. Well, actually, Chris Olson, as we've later figured out, was an old, uh, perhaps a miner from the 30s or 40s. This country actually had more people in it during the uh, Depression uh, than it has had since then. There were originally, of course, there were Native people, but they were pretty scattered out. Now they're in villages, and now the country is mostly empty. Uh, during the Depression, people went back into the country because they didn't know what else to do. And you do find these old cabins, usually dating from the 30s or from the 1890s. Because I've known so many people in recent years who are not only talking about going to Alaska, uh, but who have gone. But normally they go, uh, at the, if, if it's any wilderness area, it's maybe a, a mile or two outside of Fairbanks or Anchorage, in the, fairly much in the southern part, but not doing the kind of exploring and things that, that you did. How did you settle upon the area you went to? Had you been there with your mother before or near there? No. As a matter of fact, I chose it from a map, and I chose it deliberately for having a lack of people around it and uh, for being looking like a river that we could go up, uh, you know, up looking at the topo maps. I had no idea what the country was like, and it was a big gamble for me. Okay, now you plan to stay a year, and you know that when the heavy winter sets in, uh, Life sort of closes in on you, although even when it got to be 40, 50, 60 degrees below zero, the temperatures that we can't even hardly imagine here, you still you still went outdoors a fair amount of time, did you? Mm -hmm. And of course you had to get, uh, you, you, you lived off the, really literally lived off the land because you had to hunt animals and all that and... Uh, yes, and you'd do, be surprised how much a person eats. My mother had prepared me for this saying that you eat your weight in food every month. And... Um, it, and, and we actually ate uh, five moose, a bear, and a caribou in a year. And, <laughs> that sounds like sounds like a lyric to a Christmas song. Or something. <laughs> As a matter of fact, uh, I did not want to put the same kind of strain on the country again. This last time we went in, so we were we were able to fly into the area with a great money, deal more food, and also. Um, I didn't want uh, to put my uh, small son or uh, myself, who's now in my 40s, uh, at that kind of in that kind of position. Now, where are you living now? I'm living in Tucson. Oh, you are living at in the Tucson. Moment, oh, yes. I see. Okay, you you have gone back to Alaska, though. But... Yes, we just uh, my husband and son and I and a woman friend in her 20s went up into the country for a year and a half and just returned this September. Actually, the woman friend only stayed for the first few months. Okay. Now, the, uh, now the back to the 70s journey, the yeah. uh, wilderness journey, when you were, when you were 
living off the land and living off the you 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 had shot a moose for example uh-huh. you and phil uh, phil had pretty well i guess you both had pretty well cut it up and and and, and preserved it and all that uh, as as was done here uh, or back in colonial times i guess before there was refrigeration and all that kind of business uh, in other words during the hot weather you really have to you have at least one of my trying to say flies and insects and stuff will get at it Yes, Unless you prepare the prepare the meat very very quickly, but was is, was that kind of weird for you to take a rifle and shoot something like a moose which you had never done before? Yes, I still find it weird. It's not something I enjoy doing, and um, I avoid doing it. But I'm good at it. I can do it. And and uh, you and you and Phil circuit cut up. The, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. It took days, didn't it, to, for the first moose? I think you talked in terms of what four days, five days before you had um, to cut up. Well, the the actual first butchering of a moose takes about eight hours um, to to get the hide off it, get the guts out, and get the pieces cut into sizes that you can carry. Uh, then if you're going to dry the meat, it took us, um, I would say, probably about five days of continuous work. And I say, when I say continuous, you know, it doesn't ever get dark, and so you're working on very little sleep, somebody being up all the time taking care of the fires and, and cutting the meat up and hanging it to dry uh, and smoking it because otherwise you'll lose it. In the meantime, now it's getting into September and October and the days get a whole lot shorter then, obviously, up where you are and the days get a whole lot colder. Is there ever a feeling of a panic at this time? Because you at, late into the summer and into the year, well, the wintry weather, Yes. Uh, you you still haven't built the cabin, is not done yet. Right. It takes a quite a while, especially uh, just using an axe and hauling all the logs by hand. In fact, it was uh, 20 below zero, and we were still living in a pup tent uh, working on the cabin. And I will say that is probably the most difficult time I've ever been through in my life. And I was uh, there was a time in there which I felt that if I ever managed to get back to a nice warm house, I wouldn't even go outside again. <laughs> <laughs> And yet you got through, you got through that winter, and you were planning what were you planning to stay there just one year, and then decided you would stay there longer, or you came back and went. How did that? We, work? we came back outside and uh, and prepared ourselves for another year and your uh, year and a half, and went back in, and then we came out and we went in again. So it wasn't a continuous stretch; it was over three different times that we spent the the total of almost four years there. Now, what was the day like? I'm sure I don't know whether the days were all pretty much the same or not, but say a day in the middle of winter, it's a, you've got very little daylight, and you've got a whole lot of very cold temperatures. A day, um, how can I say this? You know, when people say, what, what is it like to live in the Arctic? I can tell you, you know, you remember uh, seeing... Um, Oh, the old movie, uh, Wizard of Oz, where it goes from black and white to color. Yes. That's what it's like for me to go to the Arctic. It's like meeting God. Um, It's a tough life, yes, but it is so beautiful. It's so quiet. Um, People talk to me about uh, the stresses or whatever being in the Arctic, and for me that's not true. For me it's a... this life is the hard life, dealing with the telephone and the commitments and um, the different things. You know, all of us have this, you know, our checkbooks or whatever it is. And for me to live a life that is simple, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty one-on-one simple. 
and some of that simplicity is a life or death simplicity. I have to admit that that's a hard one sometimes to face. Yeah, that's about as basic as you can get. Just trying to make sure that you have enough food and yeah. and then that you don't freeze to death and those and that kind of a climate and that. So you don't really have time to but it to worry create, about too much. It doesn't create the same kind of stress, believe it or not, that being late on a payment or whatever creates in my life. Um, it's, it's cut or dry, you know. You, you go out and you work as hard as you can to get something accomplished, and you either do or you don't. Somehow it, it lacks the judgment that goes with it when you feel like you're going to be late on a payment or, or you've got a traffic ticket or whatever else it is in modern life that keeps you. One, one very moving part of the book, the whole, the whole book's fascinating, but you, you talk uh, about the dog that you picked up and took uh, took north with you, a dog yeah. named... Uh, Nichetzel. You know, this was, uh, what, my, my, my mind is uh, totally blank on, uh, it was a uh, spring, spring was it not a Springer Spaniel, was oh, it? Oh, like kind of like a husky, it was a husky. It was, well, like... oh, it was a husky, though, okay, I'm, I'm way off on the breeds totally, but at one point, uh, the dog was injured, and there was some possibility you might have to shoot the dog just to put him out of his misery, yeah. or put her out of her misery, she was a female, right. uh, and yet you nursed her back to health with very, very primitive ways, and very, very primitive primitive ways, and mm -hmm. you, you're speculating at the end of the book that maybe she's probably still alive now because she's with Phil, who, I guess you, you mentioned, oh, anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm well, she too, died recently, but she was very old when she died. Yeah. She was 16. Okay, well, I'm glad she survived you, but you have a lot of tender little stories like that, facing the wilderness with a dog, and your writing is, is, is awfully nice. I, you, I just felt like I was there, and at times I really didn't want to be. You married Phil up there mm -hmm. and divorced when you came back and you said civilization, maybe maybe you weren't built to live together in, in a civilized area. Yes, this is true. I think relationships are easier, too, in the Arctic. <laughs> the <laughs> There's only one other point. You know, they, people talk about getting cabin fever, but uh, I've never experienced that. I've experienced a real sense of mutual dependency and uh, trust and friendship. Uh, it's very uncomplicated. You don't have to deal with all of the other things that happen. And, and just the two of you there with the dog for that length of time, and you don't get sick of each other. You must. There must be moments when you do. No, I, I never have never experienced that, either with uh, my husband Tom or with Phil. I just experience a great deal of enjoyment in their company. Now, Tom Irons, the man that you're married to yeah. now, must be an interesting guy. Did uh, marrying you must uh, must be a great adventure in itself. Had he had he been a, a, an explorer or anything like that? No, he'd never even camped out, and he's very courageous. Yeah, he's very courageous to undertake this. We started off actually kind of slowly uh, in the sense that we went and when Luke was uh, about eighteen months old, we went up and spent five weeks in the Arctic um, on a lake with my father and my stepmother. And, and, and Tom got a real sense of what the Arctic was like and said, well, you know, I think I could enjoy some of this. Uh, so then we canoed down the Chandelier River when Luke was four, and we all decided we wanted to go back and live there. So Tom caught on to the, the ways of you there very, very quickly, obviously. Well, you know what? I, I It isn't just me. It's the wilderness itself. There's a certain draw. I sometimes feel like it's a mixed gift that my parents gave me and that I'm ha handing on to my son. A sense of being in two worlds and never really belonging in either one. I can understand. I, I really, I think I can understand how you feel. I, I 
can understand the idea for solitude and living in in a wooded area, open area, away from people and all of that. But to carry it to the extreme that you carried it through, I cannot identify. I just cannot identify with that. It just seems to me there must be more middle grounds where the weather is better, where uh, uh, you're closer to something when you want to say, I don't, I don't really feel like roughing it quite this much right now. Yeah. Let me, let me, let me go back to where there are people and where I can live uh, a, a, a more of a, a city kind of life and then come back again. Uh-huh. But you just stayed there, and uh, although there were. There were little towns up there, weren't there, where you could Well, get... you say there were little towns up there. Yes, it's true. Uh, the nearest town is about 300 miles by river. And okay. And inaccessible in the wintertime at all. So it basically, once the river freezes, that's it. You don't have any options. How long are you going to be where you are now in Arizona? We have a home here. Uh, my husband and I have been artists in uh, stained glass for years, and we, we gave that up uh, to go back to the Arctic. And it's and in fact, what we did up there is we uh, we shot a documentary, which uh, is at the producer right now, and we've had some really good uh, reports on that. I think it's very good material, and we're looking for uh, a network and sponsors to produce that. We have ninety hours of videotape we shot. It was a lot of mm-hmm. work. A lot of work. Oh, I would think so. Maybe you'll show up on the Discovery Channel. Yeah, that's the sort of direction we're headed with that. Yeah. Now, do you feel like you're hemmed in? Do you feel like uh, something is missing now that you live in Tucson, Arizona, right in the city? Well, you know what? I don't even live in the city here. Uh, we live out in the Tucson Mountains. We, we built ourselves a, a place out on five acres, and I haven't gotten a car yet. I'm kind of trying to get into this very slowly. I live a very reclusive life. I sit here at my typewriter, and I uh, go outside and water my plants, and I often spend days that I don't see anyone except Tom and Luke. So I, in some ways, I haven't quite immersed myself yet in uh, race consciousness. Okay, I was trying to imagine before I talked with you what your voice would sound like. You sound like uh, it's a very gentle, youthful-sounding voice, and I, after reading your book, you know, lugging canoes up into through wilderness areas and building homes in the wilderness and shooting moose and skinning them and cook, all that all that really rough stuff. I thought you had, you'd have a voice way down deep here. You know, you're really, really good. You ought to see me too. I'm, I'm you know I'm 25 or 30 pounds overweight and you know, I'm middle aged, getting gray hair. I don't look like your Arctic explorer type. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have a belief. And this is what I guess this is the message I'm really trying to get across to people is that um, I think most of us have an inner quest that we something we really want to do something we'd like to explore and most of us are stopped by people's opinions or by feelings of inadequacy and what I'd like to say is that uh, what else is there you know you can spend your whole life you still die anyway you can live your life by other people's rules you don't get out of it alive uh, you really haven't you really aren't risking as much as you think you are. For Tom and I, the big risk was we had worked for 10 years to build up a very good business as artists and a good reputation. We sold the whole thing in order to do this. We just let go of it all. We said, well, this is the direction we're going, and we believe the universe supports choice, and that as artists and as people, it's important to keep growing and exploring new avenues. I don't know if we'll go back. I suspect we probably will, but it won't be doing the same thing exactly again. No, because we, we've talked uh, on this program about pursuing your dreams, and you can. And uh, it's it's really kind of a lovely thought because a lot of people don't do that uh-huh. uh, for one reason. Or other. One of the reasons is one that you mentioned: the fact that people say, "What are you? What are you? What are you? Some kind of a nutcake? You can't do that." 
And if you're slightly weak at heart or don't have that much confidence in yourself, you'll give up the idea. But that's, and it's too bad. I'm glad you said what you said. And, uh, well, it's too late for me to explore the Arctic, but I'll find, I'll find some other way to, to make up and pursue my dreams. That may not be your dream. And, and one other thing I would like to say is uh, uh, if you could even see the computer list of things that we drew up in order to go up there and the way we were prepared, uh, we did not do this haphazardly. The Arctic does not abide fools. Even people who are well prepared often get killed by it. I have known a number myself who have, who have uh, died in the Arctic. It's not, uh, it's not a forgiving land. And so I would not recommend anybody who's had this fantasy of just packing up all the kids and going and living out in the bush because there's some real tragedies there. Uh, if this is really a person's dream, they need to pursue it logically and intelligently. Hey, delightful to talk with you. Jean Aspen, Arctic Daughter, A Wilderness Journey. I'll give the publisher's name and all that a little bit later after the okay. news and things. But I, I, I do, it's, it's been a delight to talk with you. I admire, you're my role model. I appreciate it. My best to you and your family. All right. Thank you okay. for talking. Bye. Bye-bye. She's a fascinating lady. I want to tell you how much I enjoy your show. Well, thank you very much, Jane. And I, I love your sense of humor. And I was so tickled when the lady said she'd been married 50 years. And you said enough is enough. <laughs> I just thought that was funny. Well, that, you're, you know something, Jane? You're okay. <laughs> I, um, I I have a little trouble sleeping at night, and uh, you're such a friendly uh, voice in the night and uh, not too serious and not all the problems of the world, and it, it's just... We just get we get kind of giddy. Where, where, where are you in North Carolina? Pinehurst. Pinehurst? Okay. Do you, you remember... You say that and no. wonder, you're not a golfer then. Oh, that's right. That, no, I, I said it like that because it had a familiar ring. No, I'm not a golfer, but it had a familiar ring. That's. I was also thinking of, uh, of an old radio show way, way back, a funny show that took place in, uh, I, this was Arkansas, but the name of the town, it was a mythical town called Pine something else, Lumen Abner. Oh, no. You, you, no, you're not old enough to remember that. But, oh, you'd be surprised. Oh, well, I'm glad. <laughs> but they were a couple of supposedly hillbilly comics, and, and that kind of humor I always hated. Uh, but these, these guys were very, very funny. And they, they had a store in a place that sounded like Pinehurst, which is another reason I, I paused there to think. Well, Pinehurst, you know, we have golf courses coming out of our ears. And it's a very pretty village. I've only lived here, well, I say only, I'm not a southerner, as you can tell. I came, uh, at, but I've been here 19 years. And uh, the other night when I'm you... sorry, could you... Could, uh, we'll call you back. Is that okay with you? And we'll talk after the news, which is coming up right now? That will be fine. Okay, good. I'll talk to you soon then, Jane. Thanks a lot. All righty. If it's happening now, you're hearing it now on WBZ, your only choice for breaking news 24 hours a day. News Radio 1030. As uh, uh -huh. it's 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 criminal the whole the whole treatment of, of those they, dogs. Do they still have dog racing? I oh don't yeah, get around much anymore. Or... That's the most stupid sport I've ever seen. I, I to see you, these these dogs chasing a mechanical rabbit the whole race lasting about a minute. And uh, especially the pre-race stuff. I haven't been to a race in, in a long time, but I assume the formalities are the same. They have these uniformed guys 
you know, instead of the call to the post where the big horses, the good-looking horses yeah. are, are ridden around so you can see, they have the horse, the dogs on leashes, and they're marching them to this, to this march music that's played on some tinny phonograph. Da, 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 and they're marching the dogs, and that's supposed to be the pop and circumstance. And then the dogs race, and, and it's all over very quickly. Oh. And when you have that, along with these, this other awful business about killing these dogs, if they're not going to look like champions or winners. Uh, it's it's a stupid sport, and uh, you know what? It reminds me. I we lived in Puerto Rico for three years when I was in the service, and uh, we went to uh, some cockfights. I took my son. He was about twelve, thirteen then, and he just couldn't he couldn't stay very long. He went outside to watch, and the ones that uh, are lose, uh, you know, are back off. They take them out back and they just cut their throats and throw well, them out. Oh, I know. That's a, that's well. That's a sport. That's it's not even a sport. Yeah, but it's no, pretty. It's pretty I, much outlawed. It's outlawed, isn't it? Most places. Yes, but you'd be surprised how many. Uh, see, I knew I had a lot of Puerto Rican friends. I worked with them in the uh, headquarters, and um, they go every Sunday, and it's like when they're going to the track. Or something. I know it's a big thing. I, I felt the same way about bullfighting. I was down in Mexico and in Spain, watching some bullfights. I thought, what kind of a sport is this? Did I really have to kill these beautiful animals? Yes. I tell you, we're terribly civilized, John. We don't believe belong in this world. That's right. <laughs> I, I got to get going because we have news coming along, John. But you're always fun to talk with. Hey, listen. Uh, I just want to ask you. And a couple of times you mentioned, are your daughters living in somewhere away from you? Yeah, but very close by. Oh, that's good. Yeah, and we all got together Thanksgiving. We get together a lot. That's good. A um, lot during the week, and they're on the phone a lot. So it's, we, we're pretty close. Hey, listen, I like to hear the calls coming in telling the, these ladies from North Carolina and wherever, uh, telling how they, uh, they just love when you're on, and so, so do I. Hey, you're a nice man, John. Thanks a million. Hey, to best of luck. Okay, and happy Christmas to you, too to romance to and traffic to dine to because it's very much a part of our station. I don't know. I don't know where I was going with that. I don't know. You probably never get caught like that, Bruce Connolly, where you're, you're trying to end a sentence and it's all so convoluted and stupid. You don't know where to go. But when you do it on a 50,000-watt clear channel yes. station against the 38 states, it's <laughs> it's a little different than just sputtering it out at a, a small cocktail party. <laughs> I don't care. If you want to make a fool of yourself, do it in a big kind of way. That's right. You hear me, Canada and uh, <laughs> the Bahamas and all the other places we reach, including those three unknown planets. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, is there much traffic? I, just, I always have a feeling that the weekend... Every, nobody's gone anywhere, and nobody's even exists during yeah. the week. It's, it gets very quiet, I know, even here on, on the program. Yes, it is. It is very quiet out there. Pretty much uh, all weekend, except for, uh, I believe, on Thanksgiving Day, as people were going to their dinners, wherever that may have been, it was pretty busy. And probably, uh, you know, the next day is supposed to be a big shopping day, so the, the getting to the malls probably gets busy. But right now, I'll tell you what I'm going to do for you, because I think you're one heck of a guy. I'll keep well, looking out the window here on the Soldiers Field Road. If I see a car, I'll call you right away. see a car go by. <laughs> yeah. Um, I thought he was a great oh, guy and he was a good friend. I like him but uh, I think his abrasiveness is what made him a great reporter. He wouldn't yeah. take no, man. You know, you give me that information or I'll stake out your place. He came back with some great stories, but he did, unfortunately. Oh, okay. he did, I, I didn't know that. I really enjoyed yeah. his work. 
Yeah, Dick Levitan was a uh, was the first rate. You must feel warm and safe on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday evening on Soldiers Field Road between 11 p.m. and 3 a.m. as opposed to being down the new combat zone around the Quincy Market Faneuil Hall area. Why is it? Is it? Yeah, I I don't think I've ever been there at that time of night. I must have been there one time. Well, what goes on? You haven't heard the the. the uh, murder and the, the four two patriots in the last month. The four oh yes, no, I have heard that. Yeah, well, heard, not that, heard of the four meteorized crimes that have been. Well, that wasn't the was were the patriots were yeah, they the attacked? Patriots, if, the patriots punter and their center was attacked there in the in the combat zone. No, no, no. The Faneuil Hall. Quincy oh, I'm Market I'm area. sorry. I'm sorry. What am I? I thinking? was being facetious, naming Faneuil Hall and Quincy Market the new combat zone. See, that's what happens when I talk and don't listen. Uh -huh. I'll be quiet and I'll listen. Okay, yes, no, I do. You I know, am aware of that. You know the emphasis that we've heard on the, on the recent spate of crimes in that area. And now that they've gotten the police commissioner together with the owners of the uh, various merchants and nightclubs around the Quincy Market and Faneuil Hall area. And now this is the latest rage in Boston is how are we going to curb crime in that uh, yeah. You know something, Paul? You, you're really a wet blanket. We're sort of sitting here giggling like a bunch of schoolboys. I don't want to talk about this, but uh, there's something you said that that reminded me of it. Oh, the fact that it's quiet over here. No, no, you had mentioned the violence on television. and. Oh, yes, yes, I had, that's I had what mentioned triggered that. that. And I think, uh, yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not so sure that, uh, just to be serious for maybe 12 more seconds. Okay, then we'll get on to uh, We'll get on to something else. Yeah. But I, I'm not, I'm, and I never, never believed this before. And, yeah. uh, I find myself finding it hard to believe now, but I think there may be some truth in the fact that maybe we have become an insensitive society because we're so used to seeing guns and shootings and all that on television, even in a fictional way, that it, 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 leave, it just kind of seeps over in some people's minds into real life. And, and they, they, the people who are, have been protesting this, who I always thought were a bunch of kooks, uh, maybe maybe they're not so kooky after all. Maybe they. I, th I think there's a grain of uh, truth to that. Yeah, but Norman, uh, we, again, we get into the chicken or egg argument. I want to get into something else. But does TV and its violence merely reflect the public at large, or is the TV and violence uh, induce the public to violence? I think I think it's probably both in a way. I think kids growing up with it, seeing enough people dropping dead on television, phony or not, and it becomes such a natural thing that uh, that maybe then they're not horrified by it the way maybe they ought to be. And well, maybe that maybe that maybe the television the, and the entertainment, as you know, in the film industry, has always maintained that. Uh, they are merely a reflection of society at large. No, I know it. That's the argument they're using now, and people say the, uh, the FCC and, and all that will censorship. crack down on them and all that. Censorship, censorship yeah. yeah. No, I, I, I think they ought to censor themselves. I, 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 I have a hard time with censorship. I do with, with any agency telling you what to do and what not to, only right. because I'm not sure I'd trust that agency. Right. Who's going to be on that committee that makes that decision, and do I trust them any more than I do trust the TV people? Well, cellular phone force. Yeah. Yeah, you know what that is? is, what that, is that? Is that the question? Yeah, what, what, is, what, 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 is, what the heck is that? <laughs> it's, uh, it's composed of uh, people uh, who call 
who call the traffic number. Basically, it's you know, it's just civilians. It's nobody who works for us. Right, but do they? What is the number? They never give that number to call. I mean, I have a phone, but it's like, well, gee, I'm sitting in traffic and nobody mentioned that. Oh, how do you call? That's right. And there's a free number. Actually, it doesn't even cost you. Do you know? You know what the number is, uh, Sid? To the cellular force, isn't there something they can punch up and they get no? Nobody knows. No. Now, where is that we, guy? We, we I'm sorry, we're getting the number. I'm getting out of my earphones. What is that, uh, Sid? A star 1030, you think, or something like I'll tell you what, at, at 1 o'clock, if, you, if you're still tuned at 1 oh, o'clock, okay, where Bruce Connolly comes on with the traffic report, and I will ask him at that time. And we'll get that number. It's, it's, it's a good number to keep giving, because that's how he gets uh, these other reports around town. He checks on them so that, you know, he doesn't uh, just give the information people give, because somebody's have to give him a false tip. Right. But he, but at least they give him a tip and then he checks it out. Right. No, so they've often wondered about that. And now here's another, here's a, here's a radio question for you, because every time I try and call, I can never get through. Um, now, a few, this is probably going back about a month or so. There was people calling you up and they were asking you about other disc jockeys that you had known or worked with, because it seems like you've worked with just about everybody. Yes. Okay, well, now... When you were doing your your jazz show, were you allowed to just pick all the music you wanted? Yes, oh yes. So you you just make your own show. I mean, you'd make your breaks, but you'd also make, you'd pick out all your own music, and nobody said, this is too lively, this is too fusion. Well, yes, they did. They did. At first, at first they did. The, the general manager, when I first... When I first went on with the program, it was called Sounds of the Night. It was on in 1957, which is when that kind of music was very big in colleges and among young people, which sounds strange now. Right. But anyway, I, I began playing. Uh, I started with big bands, basically. Then I branched out to, to more more modern jazz and a little more adventuresome stuff. Right. And the boss never, the boss who was the general manager at that time, never was happy with it because he would have rather I played. Montavani and Percy Faith and you know that kind of stuff. Was that what the station was playing at the time, or were you? No, that's that's what they wanted me to play at night. It's it, it's I won't go through the whole history. Just roughly, we used to have an automated music system at night. That is, it was a glorified jukebox, right. so that at one o'clock everybody went home, and from the transmitter they would play this automated music, which was generally middle of the road kind of pop. Okay. And then the Andrea Dory and the Stockholm collided off the Cape, and and we were owned by two newspapers and we had nobody on on duty that night to cover this big story right. so they decided they ought to put somebody on to do it and so i had applied to do an all-night show anyway so they put me on but they didn't really care for for me to do much of anything just segue these sloppy music you know soupy things right but i began sneaking in jazz stuff like about three in the morning when i thought the boss was asleep Unfortunately, the boss used to get up during the night to go to the bathroom, and he would catch the program. So we had we had some battles about that, and he never was really satisfied with what I was playing. He very often would say, "No more Basie, and no more Ellington. What kind of stuff are you doing there? No more, no more Fitzgerald." And you know, but I would say yes, and I and I would play it anyway, hoping he was wasn't going to the bathroom at that moment. And eventually, became popular enough so that he began to lay off, and then eventually he got. He retired, and, and some new people who took over were more sympathetic because the ratings really were very good. And that's how we got into it. So when I say nobody ever interfered, at first they really gave, gave me a bad time, but I, I got through it. But all the time I did pick out my own selection of stuff. And we had, a, we had just about every jazz musician who ever played Boston uh, came on the, on the air with us, and the number of them came into Storyville and... 
the Jazz Workshop, Paul's Mall, and uh, Lenny's on the Turnpike, and all the uh, it's hard to remember all the great jazz clubs that were in existence then that brought in great performers who played the whole week. Well, that's fantastic. So you actually were able to get away with it, and it worked. In other words, yes, and it was unusual because it was on a major commercial radio station. Now, you know, that's the kind of stuff that you might find on a on a public radio station or a college station, but on a on a on a well well listened to commercial radio station like WHDH, right. which was the station. Uh, that was uh, that was almost unheard of. Oh, I know. Well, they don't let you do. I mean, nowadays on the radio, they control what you play. A computer controls what you play. For by, the, for by the most, well, for the mo yeah, for the most part, uh, that's not true on every station. I think at some of the stations, the the guys pretty much pick out what they want along along the basic format lines of what the you know what the station's all about. Right, but would you say it's a small percentage? A very small percentage. Yeah, it is a small. It is a small percentage. Maybe a couple of FM stations in Boston let the disc jockeys program their own stuff. Right. Uh, and even then, it's within a, a, a rigid format. Right. But uh, the others, no, they don't pick out anything. It's oh, all. It's I know. Well, when I was working at a couple of the Boston stations, we even had, you know, we had to say, we just read cards. Say this. You're listening. <laughs> yeah, I know it. Isn't I mean, that awful? Reading liner cards. And you know, if you which you, if you strayed, which is what I did, I tried to actually be a Norm Nathan and pioneer my own thing. <laughs> I'm didn't sorry. matter. Did, didn't matter, Norm. He was like, "Look, you know, what are you doing? Does the word verbatim mean anything to you? Read these cards verbatim." Oh, uh, I, I in recent years I worked at a station like that. I worked at a, at the WMRE, for example, which is now. I don't know some other station now, but it was a memory station there for a while. It, it's I think it's it's owned by one of the other AM. Oh, WSSH uh, AM. Okay. Uh, now, but then it was then and it was the memory station like Kiss Kiss AM is XKS. Right. Okay. The time of the music of your life, except there was we had another service, and uh, they want. I mean, they they had everything down. You play three records in a row, and of course they were on cartridge, so yeah, you never picked them out. You never even saw records, and exactly. they, whatever they had was all you could play, and you had to say somebody got the idea to emphasize the letter M in the call letters. W M R E. You had to say it that way. And I said, what the hell for? I mean, it sounds stupid. And I think the reason was because in New York at the time there was W A B C and W N B C. So they would, in order to differentiate the two, one of them would say, this is W N B C. So you know you weren't listening to A B C. But with W M pause R E, there seemed to be no sense to that at all. I worked with a lot of geek heads in broadcasting who ran stations who were like that, and you couldn't talk with them. Anyway, so I mean, it hasn't all been, you know, all, all been, how do you say, strawberries and cream, I think, as we say in the broadcasting business through these. But I'm very lucky. I'm right, right this very moment, it seems to me that any broadcaster would kill to do what I'm doing. I'm just, uh, I just, I just love it here, and they, they don't even say, Stop screaming about management, Nathan. You know, I mean, they're really great about that. I, I, I love this, and I love that jazz program. And in between, I had some cockamamie things. But uh, all in all, I've been very lucky. Right now, they don't they don't send out a, a book or an arbitron on 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 your part on night on night. Well, they do. They do uh, the nighttime. They do generally a six day thing, a right. seven day thing rather. The average of the all night listening on is seven nights a week. On occasion, they'll take a special survey, which they did one, one, one week, I think, about or one month, about uh, within the past few months. It was some, sometimes past summer, 
and they do that hourly biopsy, you know, even on weekends, 12 to 1 a.m., 1 to 2 a.m., and all that. And, and we came we came out looking really great during the night. Yeah. Right. Needless to say, you're still on. <laughs> so, yeah, no, the the, the ratings. <laughs> I, I hate to say this because uh, it's just it's bragging, and and we're kind of lucky to that the response has been like this. But uh, the ratings were just amazed me. Even I mean, there wasn't anybody even close. Yeah, but you can almost tell what your rating is going to be by your phone. Can't yes, you can. You, you, yeah, sure, you can get you can get a sense of when, when you when you don't have a listening audience. Boy, you can really sense it. I mean, it's quiet, and nobody's ever heard anything you ever said on the air. No, you you, you can. You can feel it. Right. Well, that's great, Norm. I, I, I just wanted to ask you about a couple of, you know, those couple of things about how, you know, radio was great back then. You could, you could you know, do, you did what you wanted to do, and it worked, which congratulations on that. Hey, thanks a lot, Dave. <laughs> All right, well, listen, I will write you and uh, give you, you know, uh, what do you want me to write you about, um, being on the uh, what is it, not the dumb birthday game, uh, the trivia game. Yeah, the tri the music trip, the music quiz. The we call it the uh, swell music quiz. The swell. Oh uh, yeah, quiz. just the music program, and I'll know what you're talking not about. Not like swollen, but swell as in good. Swell as in really nifty, <laughs> neat, uh, awesome. Neato. Okay. Okay. Thanks, Norm. Take care. Thanks, Dave. I'm sorry. I I shouldn't have gone on with my personal history, so it really mattered, but. Uh, I don't know. You know how we are in broadcasting. We can't shut our mouths. Have you ever heard of a car being stolen with the club in use? You probably never will. No doubt you've heard of the club, America's favorite anti-theft device. The bright red club fits easily across the steering wheel and once in place makes the car undrivable. The club, the one police recommend as represented by fellow members of the Fraternal Order of Police, is effective, affordable, and guaranteed. See package for details. Chances are 1 in 114 that you or someone you know will have your car stolen this year. In 1991, vehicles were stolen at a rate of three per minute. So this year, don't let the holidays be an opportunity for car theft, especially yours. Still priced at under $60, the club, now available in designer colors as well, makes a great gift for every member of the family. They'll thank you over and over again. The club is available at better stores everywhere, but please be careful, accept no imitations. Make sure that the anti-theft device you buy says the club on the handle. And happy holidays from the makers of the club. Rich Chocolate Ovaltine. Rich Chocolate When my mom said I should drink Rich Chocolate Ovaltine because it was good for me, I knew what that meant. It was going to taste yucky like spinach and broccoli. Boy, was I wrong. It was really chocolatey. I guess that's why they call it rich chocolate Ovaltine instead of plain Ovaltine. Rich chocolate Ovaltine is a different kind of Ovaltine with a flavor kids love, plus extra vitamins and minerals you won't find in Nestle's Quick or Hershey's. It's kind of like drinking a chocolate bar, but it's got all this good stuff in it. Things kids need to stay healthy. I love it, and my mom's really proud of me when I drink my rich chocolate Ovaltine. Dave? So what do you say, Dave? 52. Oh, 52. And uh, Tony? I'll go with Sid, 56 on this one. you 56. Can you all hear that uh, sound? Yeah. <laughs> I thought maybe I was going nuts. Are you bacon? What is it? That's a... <laughs> What's going on over there? That's Virginia. Right on the hill. I'll come well, with... well, what are you hearing? Yeah, no, I'm hearing, I'm hearing. I'm hearing heavy breathing. Yeah. Vader on the other line. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, so, who's no, on the I, I called up a 900 number before I called yeah. you when I put it on, I put it on a conference call. 
Okay. Oh, thanks, Tony. Okay. <laughs> Gary Hart is 57. Hey, all right. Okay, that means that Tony said 56 and Sid said 56. All right. And uh, those are the two winners. That's See, it, it pays wow. to cheat. Yeah. It yeah. paid to stall, didn't it? Yeah, that's, oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Okay, how, how about Hope Lang uh, from Reading Ridge, Connecticut, an actress? She was nominated for an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress in Peyton Place. And she has been on the screen since 1956. Gee, that must be a one long movie. <laughs> 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 oh, no. Sounds like she's she been on the screen. It sounds like she's played the part of a mosquito or something. But uh, that's, a whole, that's a whole other line of ribald humor. Uh, okay, Hope Lang. What, when was that Peyton Place? Peyton Place. Let's see if. Uh, well, I don't. I'm not quite sure, but uh, let's see. It does not say that here. Uh, but he's been on the screen since uh, she's been on the screen since 1956. So obviously came probably around then. I think that's about when Peyton Place came up because that was considered quite daring. Right now, it's uh, what we call a yawner. I don't think anybody would consider that daring anymore because you young folks have just sponsored and, and, and supported so many dirty pictures. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's see who we start with this time. Oh. Let's start with uh, let's start with uh, you, Tony. Uh, Hope Lang, fifty-six, right? Fifty-six. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> oh, 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 I'm sorry. That was the year you you. Trying... Yeah, yeah. Oh no, 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 no. This is the year. I'm trying to figure it out. Give me a chance. I was hoping Tony would do the mumble routine. Yeah, he wants I knew you were waiting for it. <laughs> let me let me try to add this up. Nice. Right. Hey, huh? <laughs> hey, huh? We get set at five o'clock, Tony. Fifty-three. Fifty-four. I'm sorry, I was. I just seemed to drift off into sleepy land. Fifty-four. Fifty-four. Okay. And Bruce. All of that thinking, Tony, and you're wrong. Because yeah, you've got all her videos. That's right. I've, I've got the extensive Hope Lane collection. I figured she's been on the screen since then. She, yeah, maybe she was older, so. And also, you, I know you've got a lot of the outtakes in addition to the paint place itself. Right, yes, I do. <laughs> she is 61 years old Ooh. today. Boy, he says that without any hesitation or anything. That's because I know. Sid, what do you think? The age of Hope Lang and uh, her orchestra. 59. 59. Okay, and what do you think, Fred? 62. And Dave? I need to go with Fred at 62. 62. Okay, 62. Okay, Virginia? I'm going along with Ooh. Bruce, 61. <laughs> oh boy, that, does that hurt your ears, huh? <laughs> the lights are put up. Yeah. In fact, the lights dimmed all over Revere oh. Beach with that one. <laughs> okay. As in fact, the guy... Guy up on Route One just spit out his tortilla, his tortilla or something. Anyway, Christopher, sixty. Uh, sixty. You know something, Christopher just hit it right on the button. Hey. Oh, all right. You didn't know it either, Bruce. So then. <laughs> no, the rest of you were very close. Bruce said sixty-one, and so did Virginia. They're very. Well, you're all very close. Actually, I was trying to get a date with her. That's why I said she should. Yeah, yeah, you said, yeah, could, you, know. yeah you said fifty-four, which was a <laughs> little bit beyond uh, off. But anyway, I got I got some other kinds of dates here, and I'll tell you, Vince. You know, t today is the uh, 
anniversary of the Coconut Grove fire. It was on November 28, 19, what? Coconut Grove fire. Let's see what it says here. I might give you, I think most people could, could figure that out. Uh, just one, one second to see what it says on the AP. I didn't realize it was today. Nearly 500 people died in a fire that destroyed the Coconut Grove nightclub in Boston. Uh, and it happened on November 28th. What year was that? Uh, Fred. I'm going to say 1941. 1941. What do you think, Virginia? 1940. 1940. Okay. And uh, Dave? If I'm correct, it's the 50th anniversary, which would be 43. 1943. All right. Uh, let's see. Uh, can I ask you, Fred? Yeah. You said 41. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Sid? I believe it was uh, 1942. 1942. And Tony, what do you think? I think the 50th was last year, 42. 42 also. And Christopher, what do you think? 1942. 1942, says uh, <laughs> Christopher. Uh, Bruce, what do you think? I also think it was in 42. 42 is correct. Yes. Yes, the, uh, the 50th right. anniversary was yes, was last year. That's true. So we have four winners there. And uh, Christopher now has two correct answers. Hey. All right, Chris. Oh, I've never picked out a useless gift for a 13-year-old. <laughs> I wonder if I can go to a Toys or Not Us store or something like that to find something really Toys nothing. We have Fred is still in the lead, however. He has three, but... Uh, no, Tony no. has three also. Thank you very much. Yeah, so we have a tie there, and one apiece from Sid Bruce and uh, Virginia. So everybody has one except. No, Sid's got. Except nobody. No, like every, got everybody has two, won. doesn't he? Sid Who? has two. Sid has at least Sid, two. Hold on. Sid has. Sid has two. Yes. Come on, sorry. Sid, stick up for yourself. Yeah, I'm sorry. Sid has two. <laughs> no, well, I, I was stalling again. See, Norm, Norm is terrifying. I mean, he's looking at him right now, saying, "If you even say you've got two, I'm going to come in there." <laughs> No, actually, actually, these are the. This is the unofficial tally. Oh, uh, we don't get the official tally till the game is over itself, so and all of those mistakes will be corrected. That's, that's when the judges are consulted. That's right. Okay. Okay. The first auto race. Let me tell you where it was, and I saw it. America's first automobile race got underway. Six cars began a 55-mile round trip from Chicago's Jackson Park to Evanston, Illinois. J. Frank Duryea won it in a gasoline-powered auto invented by his brother Charles with an average speed of seven miles per hour. It took seven hours and five minutes. You had him on the show, Norm, remember? Yes, right. Duryea well, was with us. the gentleman us. who rebuilt it, not Duryea himself. But. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah. Seven uh, miles per hour. And his, and his prize was $2,000, an average speed of seven miles per hour. You could have walked it. Seven hours. That's correct. Very good. It took seven hours and five minutes to uh, travel the 55 miles. I didn't. I didn't realize it was uh, that. Were, those were the two locations. I thought. I thought you said round trip. How could it be round trip? Oh, I, one I, place and then yeah, a 55 mile round, round trip. That's correct. Yes, that's right. Because actually, it was from Chicago to Waukegan, Illinois. Waukegan. Waukegan. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was Waukegan. 
uh, Illinois, you see. But well, he went what? to Waukegan and then obviously then came back to Evanston, Illinois. I assume that's just outside of Chicago, although I don't, I don't know that for, for sure. Okay. Yes, it is. Okay. Actually, this says Waukegan, Illinois. That's right. It's wrong. It's Waukegan. It is Waukegan. Is Illinois? I'm sorry. I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> anyway, what year was that? Whatever I'm really it is, I said. Okay, let's let's. Uh, we're going to start with you, Christopher. First auto race. 1902. 1902. Okay, Virginia. 1912. 1912. Okay. Dave? 1909. 1909. Okay, Fred? 1904. What do you think, Sid? I remember it well. It was 1903. Were you there? Well, of course I was. She's a big fan. Or else I wouldn't have remembered it. And uh, Bruce, I know that you're a big fan of that race. You have cardboard cutouts and all yeah. kinds of mementos, magazines, programs, and things that were put out at the time. Yes, being the big racing fan that I am, I know it was in 1907. 1907. <laughs> How a guy who's doing miserably in this game can be so positive of himself, <laughs> you know, is beyond me. He's a traffic guy. He's got an advantage, Norm. That's right, too. And it's about cars. I never, I never thought about that. Yes, it was that. a big traffic jam that day oh, because nice. they had to block off all the roads for the uh, for the race. So yeah, that's right. it's yeah, a how big far day was it backed up? It's a big day in traffic history. Oh, for miles. You know the marathoners, the guy, people run up with the marathoners and uh, give them water and fruit. You could do that with this car during yeah. that race. <laughs> Seven miles yeah. an hour. Yeah. And how do they clock that? And here he's coming by and he goes by the board. Seven miles an hour. Oh, and, and the crowd erupts. <laughs> yeah. Well, we all said life was slower in those days and yeah. kind of more relaxed. <laughs> we didn't realize just how much slower it was uh, in those in those days. Anyway, Tony, how old? What what year do you yeah, think it was? They're going to come over on Wednesday. Yep, I'm leaving Monday. That's <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, well, the car was built in 1893. So give them a little time to refine it and throw in the turbocharger <laughs> <laughs> and the high octane fuel air conditioner. Yeah, oh, oh no, no, too too heavy. They it was an wow. open air car. You know, seven miles an hour is quite a breeze. <laughs> okay. Eighteen, eighteen ninety nine. Eighteen ninety nine is the closest. You're very. That was very good reasoning. All right. It was eighteen ninety five. Wow, a couple of years after. Yeah, just just within a couple of years, they said, hey, why wait so they long? They refined it that quickly, yeah. threw yeah. more well, suspension, no. and off uh, they went. Obviously, it wasn't all that refined. It would have taken them that long to get there and back. <laughs> and I imagine a few of them broke broke down. But they figured, hey, listen, we got the car. Let's do it. We can always do it again later when we've refined the car. Huh. It actually started in 1895 and ended <laughs> in 1899. <laughs> Oh, oh. I have to break this whole thing off. Oh, yeah. Now cut that out. <laughs> okay, now here's a, here's another event of that. I ought to stop this. 
<laughs> I'd have stopped us. That's stop. re is that reaching a little bit, Fred? Stop yeah. this. No, I auto stopped this. Oh, auto. Oh, 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 auto. Auto was the keyword. Oh, that's different. Oh, Let, that's let's different. let's try to shift over to something else. All right. Shift over something else. Yeah. That's very very Better good too. Norm here. Now, what you're saying is, well, what we're doing now is pretty good in the clutch. So who cares? Oh. But, oh, 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 oh. I mean, jokes are giving me cash. Uh, yeah, I think. <laughs> I think this whole thing is accelerating my move out of radio. But come on, you got this thing's moving on like a well-oiled machine. Now. Oh, oh, oh. I think we better speed up this process and get. I had to put mufflers. Muff, I think mufflers on all of you. Okay, let's let's uh, let's oh. take the next event. Wow, we were rolling for a while there. Oh, this yeah, is, that was, that was pretty good. Oh, I'm exhausted again. Yeah. Oh, gee. Oh, <laughs> okay. Um. It's really stalled the game. Oh, oh stalled the game. Huh? <laughs> Did I ever tell you you guys all stink to high heaven? <laughs> oh, you're just you're just getting rusty, Norm. That's all. <laughs> okay. This. Tell me what year this happened. This is the uh, the first WSM barn dance. Pardon me. The first WSM barn dance was held in Nashville, Tennessee. Later renamed the Grand Old Opry. What's WSM? The radio station? Oh. Yeah, that's WSM is the radio station in Nashville. And they, it was called a barn dance, and it's still broadcast by WSM and called the Grand Old Opry. Oh. When it was the barn dance, at one point, maybe I'm thinking of some other things. There used to be a program called the uh, Barn Dance, and there was a guy named Uncle Ezra, who was kind of the, the folksy MC, and he would say, at the end, he'd say, <laughs> Uh, little things like remember, folks. Remember, folks, when your when your um, hand itches means you're gonna get something, and when your head itches means you already got it. So long. Drive safely on the way home, everybody. That was Uncle Ezra, and that was the. Uh, Want to do some more automobile jokes? <laughs> <laughs> okay. When was the Grand Old Opry? When did that? When did that uh, go? When when did that start? as the barn dance and then become the Grand Ole Opry. We also go back right to the very beginning. Let's see. Yeah. What year was that? Let's let's see. Let's start with you, Tony. Thanks. <laughs> Grand Ole Opry. This was radio. Oh, well, I think so. All right. Or it might have been on a fax machine way ahead of its time. On, you know, like a stationary store joke. It's got something about barn dancing, you know? I went to a you know, barn dance and I, and I looked at it. out and I waited hours and hours and that thing never moved. It didn't even do a little no, not even a, no. Not even a little tarantella. No. <laughs> no, just stood there. <laughs> okay. well, maybe there isn't a joke there. No, there wrong, isn't. So. There is no. No, uh, if there were, Fred or Christopher would have come up with it. Yeah. <laughs> um, or maybe, uh, Tony, anyway, what, what year do you think the Grand Ole Opry started? Well, the barn dance. Well, it which started as the, the barn dance, which became yeah, the Grand Ole Opry. How many Ole years Opry. after the, was it, it, it became known as the the, uh, the uh, Grand Ole Opry two years after it started. Really? Yeah. So, so it was only the... You're not making that up, no? No, no, no. It, it was only the, the barn dance only for a couple of years. Uh, I was in Tennessee and Nashville, and they've, they've uh, got a whole new setup. It's not right in downtown Nashville anymore. It's a part of uh, a hotel, Dollywood... Uh, thing oh, that the Dolly Parton, Parton, Parton. Yeah, she has a theme park that's right next to. I think, in fact, I think the Grand Ole Opry 
is part of that now, okay. or very close to it. And then we stayed in a motel. This was a convention with the pails of water out the door and making jokes about Dolly Parton. It was a wild time. We took beer labels off the bottles, put them on our forehead, and danced around and everything. It was We just went crazy. What a heady life. Uh, you were a risk taker back then. What happened to you, Norm? Yeah, I don't know. I just became you had a... labels on your forehead. Jeez. I just became... <laughs> oh, well, so a another tailhook scandal I, I, going there. I, know. I, know. I just became... up, too. That's right. Oh, yeah. oh. <laughs> we, we, uh... <laughs> if you could just back off just a little, Virginia, because you're coming on so loud, it's hard to understand you. I don't mean to make fun. But, of course you do. I guess you're right. You're yeah. probably right, yeah. Okay, what... what uh, I don't you... know, 19... Thirty. <laughs> it happened. Dramatic on, pause there. Yeah, it happened on this date too, November twenty eighth, which is why we're bringing it up. Yeah. yeah and the auto race also is November twenty eighth. Uh, did okay. they broadcast it? Yes, they broadcast the auto race. Oh, yes. eighteen ninety four. No. All right, nineteen thirty eight. Nineteen thirty eight. Okay, Bruce. I know that. Uh, You've, you've got all the records made by all the artists who oh. ever appeared on the Grand Ole Opry. Oh, believe me, am I a big country music fan. Yeah, <laughs> yeah me One too. of the biggest, huh? Uh, uh, you know what? I, I will honestly say that I'm not <laughs> a country music fan. I, I can't yeah, but that. I know the the only record you really liked was Elton Britt's Blood in the Saddle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't care to tell you why it was named that. Yeah, yeah you always words. do. I was yeah, waiting I for it. That's know. usually a very funny line, Norman. You didn't finish. You mean mean the part about it's uh, being a, the hemorrhoid song? Yeah. I don't want to do that right now. Oh, okay. Because this is a kind of a class program, and there may be somebody of importance listening. We do have youngins on the on the. Uh, oh, that's right, too. That's right. Christopher's getting say. an education today. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, I'll say 1948, and I don't know why. But I'll say it. Okay, well, I'll put it in parentheses. I don't know why. So <laughs> we'll keep that for the record. Sid, what do you say? 1926. 1926. Well, we've kind of covered the uh, three decades yeah. now. That's right, yeah. Uh, Fred, what do, you, what, what do you think? What year did the Grand Ole Opry start on 19, radio? 1936. 1936. Okay, Dave? 1933. 1933. Virginia? 1934. Okay, and, and Christopher? 1933. 1933. Same as, uh, same as what Dave said. Okay, uh, the actual year was 1925. Wow. Uh, Sid said 1926. You can't get any closer than that. No, nobody said 24. So. You know that, Sid. Do you have some kind of idea on that? Well, yeah, because you you were you were much much uh, lower in the uh, in the in the date than anybody else did. So, so no, I just had a, a oh. funny feeling about it. Mm. Okay, no, that, I wasn't, gonna, oh, I wasn't you know, know, grilling you or anything. I just was curious. No, I was the only one who guessed like that. Uh, so I was, got, I got, was there for that too. Um, oh, we've got a we've got a three way tie. Then we got Fred, Sid, and Tony all have three. No, Tony has four correct answers. Uh. Oh, Tony wins. I'm sorry, Freddie. Nosed you and the sit out. Well, I, and, uh, I'm, nice I'm, Tony. You know something? I'm no longer a big fan of. Tony. 
Oh, he scares me. You know that? <laughs> yeah, that is kind of scary. They go to our recording bits of this program and playing it back for you on the phone. Okay, one one yeah. more thing, though. Since, since the game's over, I just thought I'd say the number 76. Trombones. <laughs> well, I thought you'd be right there with me on that one. Now, to tell you the truth, Fred, the only reason he did what he did just then is because he's sick to death of you like all the rest of us are. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no offense, I hope. I'll take it. Okay. Okay, well, anyway, that winds up the, the swell dumb birthday game. Uh, I think one day the management's going to say, what happened the other night? They're going to call up Fred, and he'll play the whole thing back for him. <laughs> I think we we better get on the good side of this guy, because he could ruin us all. Oh, oh. See what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Uh-oh. Hey, Christopher? Yeah? You're still awake? Are you very tired? Yeah. Are your folks up now, too? Uh, sort of. They are now. Oh, they, <laughs> they are now. Hey, Christopher, you, you sound like a real nice... Nice kid, and I appreciate you playing the game with us. Thanks an awful lot. Okay. Have a good week. You too. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. And uh, Virginia? It's been fun. It's been fun having you, and I hope everything goes well. Yes, it's been nice. And can I have Sid back? <laughs> well, no, Sid is, Sid, Sid is kind of busy now. What did you want to talk to Sid about? Well, she was going to give you her secret code name from... Oh, I see. A long time I ago. See. All right, hold on and... Uh, and what the heck is that? That wasn't me. No, I know it. I believe it might have been Fred. Right, Fred? Yeah, I'm just going to hang up. Wow. Yeah. No, he, wow. He, he knows that I usually hang up on him. or, But the, the last several times, he's been hanging up on me. Uh, and I think that is just so darn cute. Okay. Uh, Sid is, Sid is going to take the uh, take your, your call and find out what name you used back then. What, 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 what area are we talking about? What, what was the incident? Charlie Van Dyke. Oh, Charlie Van Dyke. I met you through Charlie Van Dyke. and yeah, I uh, talked to you many times with Charlie Van Dyke. I see. Okay. And uh, thanks for playing the game, oh, Virginia. I, I loved it. Here comes... Okay, here's, here's Sid to take the call. Thank you. And Dave, thank you very, very much. Okay, thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and Tony? Yes, Norm? You're okay. You know something? Uh, well, you know comes naturally i guess we'll see we'll see you later maybe not okay. take care norm okay bye bye and bruce as always thank you hi this is bill marlowe you know Okay, let's really get the program underway for for real for now. Okay, this is this is for real. The other was just a test. Look at the time; it's already five minutes after midnight. Then I tell you the temperature. I think in all the confusion, I did. Anyway, it's thirty-seven degrees in Boston right now. Thirty-seven. And uh, I'd like to very very much to hear from you. As a matter of fact, with uh, without you, I'm just nothing. Anyway, it's two five four ten thirty. Area code six one seven. We'll just chat through the night. I, I thought that'd be kind of a unique way to run a program. Uh, we'll be here till 5 o'clock in the morning and uh, like that. Uh, anyway, let me give you some scores. Stuff. Rick Fox kept up his resurgence with 22 points, and the Boston Celtics led by at least five points for the last 44 minutes as they beat the Portland Trailblazers 114-108 to 
at the Boston Garden. There's a, there's a great name for a, a basketball team, the Portland Trailblazers. Anyway, the Red Sox, the uh, Celtics rather beat them. Hold on a minute while I wrestle some uh, some papers in your head. Oh, the uh, winning lottery numbers, Massachusetts Daily Lottery was 9774. Mass Millions, 9, 10, 17, 27, 46, 49, and a bonus number of 7. And there were no winners. The, it was $9.8 million in the jackpot for the Mass Millions. It has gone unclaimed. Nobody picked all six numbers. However, tickets in Peabody and Dennis down on the Cape both matched five plus the bonus number. So they won $50,000 apiece, but nobody won the whole uh, nine, almost $10 million in Mass Millions. A tri-state daily, 781 and 3219. Thank you just so much. Anyway, our number is 254 I guess I said that, 254-1030. Anyway, did you have business with, the, with the, the chairman of this team canteen committee, Mike? Where am I? Where am I? You're right over. I, I was at the, the the business that I had with the uh, chairman. I was going to come in prior prior to the chairman ascending his throne. I was going to say, "Have a wonderful show and kick you know what." We've <laughs> okay, talked yeah. about it before. Here's a, here was a sad note in the news though: is the, the the death of Bob Wolf, who was a really a very a high class, very very nice gentleman. I have to tell you, everybody gave eulogies, including uh, Larry King and. Uh, uh, Larry Bird was there, and John Havlicek, and I guess a number of other people also spoke at his funeral. John Kerry was there, and 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 all that. I, I was somewhat surprised by all the all the uh, non-athletic types who came out for, for the funeral. I had known that he was very very big in the world of sports and entertainment, but um, I didn't realize that he was as as well known and well loved around you know in, in all different communities. I, I guess in general, Gene Shalit. Uh, uh, of NBC, the uh, movie reviewer and, and an extremely bright guy who comes to this area quite often. I think he's had some children who've gone to school in this area, something. Anyway, he shows up in this area quite often. He was one, and, and we mentioned Carrie, that's true. And uh, Joe Kennedy, Rep U.S. Representative Joe Kennedy, was there, and, and a number of others, uh, in addition to the uh, sports people. I remember one time I had. Uh, I had lost a job somewhere. I can't. I can't remember where. And even if I could, I wouldn't tell you what station it was because it probably was about every station in Boston at one time or another. And Bob Wolf called me and said, "Let me help you get another job, Norm. At uh, and no, there'll be no fee." I mean, he just wanted to do it out of the goodness of his heart. I mean, here's a guy who was representing everybody in the entire world, and has, has done extremely well at that. And just kind of was ready to reach out because we had known each other for, I guess, for a number of years. And he always was so grateful for the fact that he grew up in not too uh, expansive surroundings up in Portland, Maine, which is where his home is. And I guess his wife, Ann, is from up there also. And he always said, Ken, he's always pinching himself to think, he's this little kid from Portland, Maine. It has done just so very, very well in, uh, in, in sports and Another story similar to yours that I heard was uh, from Harry Sinden, the I guess he's the general general manager for the Boston Bruins, and he and uh, Mr. Wolf went head to head many times with different players' uh, salaries and contracts and whatever. 
And when Harry, back, I guess, in, in the 70s or early 80s, I, I'm not sure exactly when it was, when his contract was up for renewal of some kind, uh, Bob Wolf said to him, Harry, let me help you out here. Let me tell you what to do. No charge, no nothing. Just want to give you a few hints on what to do. I saw that on the uh, TV news. Uh oh, really? Yeah, no kidding. I, I hadn't seen that. He's, that's the kind of guy he was. It always surprised me because he always seemed so gentle and always was smiling and so pleasant. And you don't think of a guy negotiating big-time contracts with big stars for big bucks as as being like that. You think he'd be, you know, a, a table pounder and, and all that and a, and a strict, tough guy that people would shudder. But maybe that was his charm, the fact he went in and he disarmed you just by the fact Quite that he was possibly, such a charming man. And I'm sure that when other um, player representatives pass on, such as, let's say, when Don King finally goes on to his great hairy reward, <laughs> uh, <laughs> maybe his reward will be a, a giant can of moose. Anyway, um, I'm sure he's not going to get the accolades and the tributes from around the country and around the world, probably, that, uh, that Mr. Wolf has gotten. No, probably, I guess, I would guess not. I would guess No, not. Bob Wolf was, was somebody very, very special. Okay, we'll take some calls right after this, but first... Best selection in confection, Mrs. Nelson's can... How you doing, young fella? Okay, how are you doing? <laughs> the first time you and I ever met, you were on a boat up in Watford. On Vic and Franny's boat. On whose who's boat? Vic and Franny. The VG. Vic and Franny's boat. Yep. When was that? Oh, my God. Let's go way back now. Tied up at Rockport. Yeah? Franny Gorham? Oh, yeah. Oh, Franny. I never thought... He, he was Frank to me. I never thought of him as Franny. Yes, that's right. That, that, sure. that, that's and back... That's back in... Uh, you bet your life. Well, wait a minute. I haven't, haven't set a date yet. Uh, it was back in the f the 60s, I guess. Back oh. about 30 years ago. Yep. Uh-huh. That's the first time yeah. we met. Uh-huh. Then we met at Lenny's. Lenny's on the turnpike. You bet your life. You betcha. You betcha. I was a jazz person. Jazz person. You bet your life you were. And last week, you know, we were talking about Hampton Beach and Salisbury Beach and the whole ten yards. We were talking about that, were we? Yeah. I believe last week. Yeah? Or whatever. Yeah. Of course, right after the war, uh, there were five of us. We didn't drink. We didn't do anything. We just, we were beach bombers for the summer. Just hung around. Slept, slept underneath their yeah. lifeboats and whatever. Yeah. But grabbed the bus from Hampton to Salisbury. Yeah. Because it was a jazz place down there. Where? Oh, I can't think of the club. Down in Salisbury. On Salisbury. Yep. Uh-huh. We'd go in and just sit there, and all these fellas, like especially saxophone, trumpet, uh, bass, the whole ten yards, and we'd just sit there and listen to them. Listen to what? Who? Oh, yeah. Oh, no, that's what I'm talking about right now. We sound like Abbott and Costello with this routine. Have you done anything lately? Uh, you're just my a, age? You're, no. you're in a, what, do you, what do you mean your age? No. You've given up on life, have you? Oh, no. Oh, no. No way. Well, 
Well, now, what have you done lately? You've been, you're talking about things that happened 40, 40 years ago. That's right. Didn't anything happen? Has nothing happened since then? Oh, that no. It? I had my job and my, you know, public safety and the whole ten yards. But, uh, no. Hold on a minute. Let me write that down. The whole ten yards. I like that. That's good. <laughs> the whole ten yards. Okay. But, uh, those were the days, my friend. What about, what if, were they? What about public safety? Are you a police officer? I'll never tell. You said public safety. What does that mean? Firefighter. Oh, firefighter. Okay, good. But whatever, you know, the days of jazz went away to a degree, especially when Lenny's went down. And the whole 10 yards. Oh, oh the whole 10 yards. That was, you know. Yeah. That was the whole 10 yards. Yes, it was. Yeah. Because that man had, oh, boy. Oh, wow. Oh. You and I could, uh, you know, walk into the eye there. Oh. And you wouldn't know who it was. But I well, knew you. Would I? Oh, I wouldn't know who you are. Of course. Is that what you said? Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, I just say hi. Okay. Well, I appreciate this reminiscing, Pete, but I, I don't think I can stand any more of it. But uh, I appreciate talking to you. Thank you very much for calling. <laughs> oh, is that you, Beverly, coughing? <laughs> we haven't even started the conversation yet. You're coughing in my ear. This is going to be a terrible night. I, I can feel a disaster. I, I, Good morning. I, I, I know people have been coughing. No, I, I screwed up in the opening thing. I talked over everything that I shouldn't have done. I couldn't remember to put the, the, the theme or anything. And then I get a guy who who, not, who wants to talk about 50 years ago. Then I then you come on and you cough in my ear. I'm sorry. I mean, my job is hanging by a thread as it is. Don't, don't ruin it for me. I'd just like to wish you happy Thanksgiving and holiday. You, uh, you, would you do me a favor? Why don't you hold on just a minute? Take a deep breath and cough and everything, and then talk. Okay. Are you okay now? You can tell me I'm a doctor. Oh dear, I'm sorry. No. If you wish to take off your clothes, also I I will look at you in a professional way because I am. A medical man. A medical man. I'm well, a physician. Well, my mother is a medical woman. She's 84 years of age, and tonight she said she would like to listen to the radio. I said, ah, Norm Nathan's going to be on tonight. So would you please just tell her to calm down and relax? Her I name is uh, Dorothy. Dorothy. Yes. Okay, well, tell her that, but I, I think the same advice ought to go to you, too. <laughs> I'm no, going, no. I'm, I'm going to go to bed. But I thought, I said... Did, did you want to announce that, the 38 states in Canada? <laughs> that way you called? Do you think, you think, for example, in Indiana and Pennsylvania, they give a damn? <laughs> no, they don't. Not at all. <laughs> you're starting to snort now. Beverly, you're snorting. I'm you're terribly... supposed to You're supposed to be a class act. And if I'm going to take you to the prom, I'm not going to take a, a lady who's all... Do not take me to the prom. No, right. but she, she'll be in gown, and I'll give you a corsage, and you'll look so beautiful, but you'll snort. You know what the guys will say to me after that? I'm starting to laugh so much. Oh, my goodness. They'll say, that was a beautiful woman you had, but why did she snort the whole evening? You picked up the phone so quickly. <sighs> Are you all right? I have tears coming down my eyes. Oh. <laughs> <Oof>. I, <don't... laughs> 
I think this uh, is our conversation winding up or we're leading into something exciting. No. Could you please say, uh, Dorothy? This is Norm Nathan. Saying <laughs> to calm, calm down. Uh-huh. I'm laughing so much, though. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thank goodness. Hello, Mother. Okay. Hey, Beverly, you, this conversation is about as interesting as the last one I had. <laughs> No, I am. Boring. No, I, I'm. I'm doomed tonight. Oh. This is. This is the end of it. I feel like I. I felt like I had a few more years left in my nothing kind Please of career. Stop but I, don't, it, Norm. I, I. I think it's all over now. This, <laughs> no, it's no, not. This is, this is it. I appreciate you really. Well, I appreciate you too, Beverly. Want to fool around a little bit? No, I'm going to bed now. I see. <laughs> no, this is a nice light show. And I appreciate oh, you. Sure. This is like a bubblehead show so <laughs> and, far. And you're saying to me, get off the phone, right? That's about what that was. In, a, in an indirect way, I was sort of suggesting that that wouldn't be a bad idea. <laughs> okay. I have a feeling the other stations in the city are not too frightened by what's been going on so far. Oh, it's a lovely, cool evening out. It is, it's pleasant, though. It's not too terribly cool. It really it's, is. Well, it's 30, about 37 degrees. Mm, yeah. Nice and refreshing. Refreshing, I think, is the word. The whole nine yards. I enjoy refreshing. Okay. okay. Enjoy hey, best you. to you and best to your mother. Okay. Bye-bye, Beverly. I am. I'm in bad trouble. Offer with approved credit traded based on NADA guideless damage. Dealer to subsidize 16 month payments to buyers source till March 94. Discounts and rebates in lieu of offer. Hey, Eddie. What are you... Why don't we get copies of the old radio shows? Uh, here's the... Here's the... Sent for the uh, catalog, and they'll... They'll tell you what they have. Heritage Radio, Post Office Box 16, Boston, Massachusetts, 02167. That's Heritage Radio, Boston Post Office Box 16, Boston, Massachusetts, 02167. Get your free list now. While there's still time to order the most nostalgic gifts of the season... So get the catalog now and see what you'd like to get. And then probably somebody in your shopping list, maybe you yourself, would like uh, an old-time radio show or two or three or four. Again, okay, it's Heritage Radio Post Office Box 16, Boston, Massachusetts, 02167. And give a distinctive vintage radio gift from Heritage. This is uh, Guy who is in uh, the town of Westwood. Hi, Guy. Hello, Norm. How you doing? Not bad. It's, it's been quite the fun night, hasn't it? Oh, it's been, yeah, I'm just so glad, uh, so glad I came in. By gosh. Well, I was talking to your producer just uh, before I got on the phone, and I, I told him I wanted to discuss some jazz. And he asked me where that name came from, and I just don't know. And I have to ask you, Norm, where did jazz come from? Nobody really knows for sure. In some cases... Some people say it's a, it's kind of a, it's kind of an obscene, not obscene. It's a word for for us, an act of sex. Oh, because jazz originated, might, might not originate. We yeah, much much of it that was played uh, in, uh, what is in brothels. Well, yes, that's and that kind of stuff. And so jazz kind of went along with that theme. I'm not sure that that's so. Well, it, it could be. It could be. I, and I, I've read a, an awful lot about it and talked with an awful lot of people. Nobody really knows. 
So I could make up a story, and what the heck, who, who could dispute it? Exactly. Well, the reason I bring up jazz is because I'm, I'm kind of a young guy myself and, and starting out in a band or with my friend. Yeah, now what do you play? Uh, I play the guitar and also the bass. Yeah. And he plays the drums, and uh, a lot of our music has absolutely nothing to do with jazz at all. <laughs> okay. Yeah. We thought that we really needed to get some jazz influences in there. Who's good? Oh, gee, so many people. Yeah, I mean, he's into Benny Goodman a lot. and Well, yeah, you can do, uh, yeah, I suppose... Uh, I'd go. I'd go along with something a little, maybe a little more daring than that. I, yeah. If you're talking about traditional jazz, right? Charlie Parker and uh, Lester Young and uh, Ben Webster, among my favorite saxophone players, and there are a lot of good trumpet players and, and you know good vocalists. Yeah. Uh, and and all that. Uh, I mean, Benny Goodman has, has has had some good musicians and has done some nice work too. Sure. But there's a whole a whole other world beyond that. Well, certainly. I mean, I've, I've been exposed to so much music. My mom's yeah. into very religious music, but that's not my speed. <laughs> well, no. I mean, some of the, some of the a lot of a lot of jazz has come from uh, gospel music and that kind of yeah. stuff. I'm really from the church, so that's kind of that's a lot of that's pretty hip, good stuff. But what kind do you normally play? What's comfortable for you? Um, as far as musically, yes. Oh, uh, I'm pretty out there. <laughs> like, like, what do you play now? Um, well. Right, right now we're doing sort of a, a hard edge melodic type of thing, something that really couldn't be categorized, and that, that's where we want to be. And if we throw some jazz in there, I just think it would be like the coolest thing. I think it sounds nice. Because who else is doing it? I mean, jazz is almost practically non-existent on pop radio formats. And, and oh no, that's that's quite true. Can you hold on? Would would you mind doing that? We'll talk after the news. Certainly, Norm. Okay, good. Uh, we'll put you on hold. Great. And the, the producer you talked to is John Kelly. Okay. He'll put you on hold, and we'll talk it right after that. Thanks, uh, Coming up to the news now in about uh, 20 seconds or so at 1230, and uh, we'll get back to Guy, we'll get back to Ann, and you two at 254. Fine. How are you doing? Very fine. Thank you. Good. Um, well, I just thought that you you wanted someone to talk about what was going on now, although actually the young man who was on a minute ago was talking about what he was doing now so yeah no any I, I, any conversation at all is kind of nice just uh, that just the other fellow that i was talking with uh, uh, was talking so much about what happened 40 years ago yeah. i was getting kind of lost in nostalgia there. yeah right, right i don't i don't mind doing that but uh, what's happening today is kind of important too yeah well i agree yeah. you sound like well, a, are you a very young person um no i'm not <laughs> okay um I just sound that way. <laughs> you do. You have a nice. You have a nice voice. Thank you very much. I'm falling in love with it. Oh well, that's great. I, I I'll give you my home number later, and you can make obscene phone calls. To me. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm being silly. I'm being silly now. Sorry. Oh God, I wonder what I would do if I were going to make an obscene phone call. I've I never thought about that before. I, I don't think I ever got. I never got an obscene phone call oh, that I can recall. Shoot. Yeah. And you never made one, so this can be this can be our initiation yeah. into the world of decadence. Yeah, that right. would be just so darn nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to tell you, well, first of all, although this has not been preying on your mind, it hasn't been preying on mine either, uh, either, I wanted to clear up something that I think I said incorrectly to you a couple of months ago when I said that um, my initiation into the world of jazz, this is the 
talking about the past for a moment, was uh, when I was about 15 at Storyville. But it wasn't Storyville. It was the Savoy, I realized. Oh, afterwards. you were the Savoy up on Mass Avenue. Yeah. Well, yeah. of course, it's, it's an awful long time ago. But um, And that's where I heard Edmund Hall and All Stars and Bob Wilbur. Uh, and oh, you're, you. you're, you're talking about my people back then. That's... Yeah, well, you know, you're going to think this is really crazy. And this, this may be totally something I've cooked up in my mind since this memory has been dredged up. But I think I might have met you there. <laughs> I used to go there a whole lot. It was... I think I really might have. Uh, yeah. I met George Ween. Yeah. He used to hang around there. And I have this feeling that, that I was introduced to you. Were you kind of tall and skinny in those days? <laughs> well, not not any taller than I am now, although uh, probably I was. I think I've shrunk a little bit. But I was, yeah, quite thin. Yeah. And terribly good-looking with a square jaw, body of well-tempered steel, boyish grin, crooked smile, broad shoulders, and slim waist. Is that what you remember most? No, my mind is blank. I'm afraid. <laughs> don't remember any of that stuff. No, I don't. Okay. Sorry about that. But anyway, it is possible. It is possible. So I was going to tell you what I did tonight, which I thought might be. Okay, because just before you wind up the Savoy stuff, yeah. for people who are wondering where it was, it was uh, on Mass Avenue near, well, right, right near, near uh, was that Washington Street? Where, where was the, uh, the hi-hat was around the corner. Was that Washington or Tremont? That was Tremont, I guess, around the corner. Maybe. And yeah. they had Wally's Paradise Room was there, and Conley's was up the road. A lot of jazz places right, right throughout that area. It, and and, uh, and there were, oh, what, you mentioned you said Bob Wilbur and uh -huh. Dick uh, Dick Wellstood, who was the pianist with Bob Wilbur, and uh, I think I think Sydney. Well, anyway, I won't go through all, but but it was a, it was a it was a great spot. Yeah, it was. It it really was. Um, so I became enamored of jazz, and uh, and I've loved it ever since. Not that I know as much as I would like to about it, but... Um, well, nobody does. Yeah. So it's okay. Except for some musicians who look down their noses at the rest of us a little bit, but that's okay. So, um, but anyway, I, I went to the Crafts at the Castle. You know what that is? Near the, uh, near the Park Plaza Hotel. I, I, I... Oh, yeah, sure, yeah, the, the old armory there. Yeah, now... Was that really an armory? Yes, it was. Yes, it was. It was taken over by uh, the people that own the Park Plaza Hotel. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that's sort of an adjunct to it. They have special functions and stuff. Now, what did you, what was, what's over there now? Did you well, just go there? Well, there's every year. And by the way, this is the first time I've gone on a Friday night. And it was practically empty. And I, and I could, well, first of all, I could see the craft very well. But also, I could really see the building. And that's why I was questioning whether it really was an armory, because at least the part that I was in, um, you know, doesn't look that armory-ish. It's, it's got all sorts of wonderful carved balconies and what have you, and the ceiling isn't that high. So it must have been some part of it. Those were some delicious leftovers that stuffed our ears with great radio. Uh, before I make everyone sick with these lines, let's close the vault and leave this world a little sillier than we found it. For Gene Aspen. The club, available at better stores everywhere. Not bad stores, not the best stores, just better stores. Rich chocolate Ovaltine, heavy breathing, mumbling. Having a voice that dimmed lights at Revere Beach.
Toys Are Not Us, Waukegan, Illinois, Car Puns, Uncle Ezra, The Grand Old Opry, The WSM Barn Dance, Elton Britt, Charlie Van Dyke, The Whole Ten Yards, Jazz, Fred from Medford, John Kelly, Mike Epstein, Sid Whitaker, Bruce Connolly, and that terribly good-looking man with a square jaw, body of well-tempered steel, boyish grin, crooked smile, broad shoulders, and slim waist. Norm Nathan, I'm Tony Nesbitt.